How many, out of curiosity, um, have, at least this week, read ahead? There's no condemnation. I just want to see who is brave to read these chapters and actually, wow, see exactly what I thought. Now, um, I, it's okay. I did it for you. And let me tell you, it was hard. Um, f- frankly, this is where audio Bibles are very helpful. Um, got to listen to a lot of this because honestly, it, it's hard to stay awake reading part of this, this part of Leviticus. Um, what we have here is, uh, <laughs> we have food laws. We have laws about don't eat pigs. So I brought a pig for us so you guys could track. So we have, we have food laws. And then we have, in chapter 12, we have um, labor laws, and not like labor unions, but like when you have a baby, when you have birth, um, take care of them like this. And so we're going to have a baby here to help us remember what's going on. And then in chapters 13 and 14, seriously endless chapters, seriously endless. Uh, It talks about skin diseases and what to do with skin diseases. So we want to make sure that we're healthy. So we're going to have a stethoscope up here to remind us about health. And um, then in chapter 15, we have um, bodily fluid discharges. So we're going to have a lot of things you could have up here, but um, this is the safest. When you have a cold, you need Kleenex. So all of these things are going to be reminders for us as we go through these strange passages. So why are Leviticus 11 through 15 in the Bible? Why are these chapters here? Uh, we often come to these and say, yeah, so the Jews couldn't eat pig, but that's changed now. So these chapters don't really apply to us in our lives anymore. And we say, okay, then why are they here? And why, furthermore, are we talking about them tonight? Now, it's not going to be a real clean cut, apply this like this, apply this like this. You're not actually going to copy many of these verses. Many of them you're going to say, that's archaic and that's old. But what I want to do tonight is show you what it meant then, and then give you guys uh, not an exposition as much as a a meditation on what is here for us now. And I think this has as much practicality as anything you read in the New Testament. So let's start with the fact that most of us, I should say most of, I don't know if it's us, but most of Christendom lives when Genesis 3 starts. For us, the Bible starts in Genesis 3. It's a fallen, broken world. There's evil everywhere. The devil's under every rock, behind every tree, and in every pleasure. And we must therefore tread carefully on this earth and try to do everything we can to stay clean, dodge the booby traps, go through the obstacle course, and get to heaven. But the Bible starts in Genesis 1, and we forget this sometimes. We forget that everything is here because God spoke it into being. He said... And then it happened. And then he said, it is good. And he climaxed the entire creation with this exclamation point when he said, it is very good. All of it is very good. We forget that. We forget that this world is actually a good place. The planet is a good place. Creation is a good thing. And Christians are not necessarily supposed to walk around with their robes tightly clasped so nothing gets 
dirty, but to go and enjoy God's world and to live in it and to figure out how to bring the gospel to every part of it. I say this because my journey in following Jesus started off very pessimistic toward the planet, toward everything. Food was um, just a necessity. Food was something you just ate, so you weren't hungry. It's probably why I'm 5'7", maybe (laughs) 5'8". Everything. Um, I was very, I had this very negative attitude toward everything. Movies were a waste of time. Who wants to sit there for two hours when I could just read a book and get smart? Now there's some wisdom in that, but the attitude was like, how dare us have fun? Uh, Music became just, you know, all my standards were lowered because everything was just simply, ah, let's just endure it so that we can get on to the real business, the afterlife. So even, you know, music was subpar. Worship was just, you know, as long as someone's singing from their heart, it does not matter. Let's just worship. And then I'm like, but, but we, there is actually talent out there and we should find talent. We should do everything well. So somewhere in my life, there was this turn and somewhere in my mid twenties, I began to study creation. What is the creation account about? And then I began to study the Gospels. And then I began to study Revelation. And I began to see this theme in which God said everything's good. And then he's going to bring heaven to earth and call it good again. So that what was in the Garden of Eden is going to be restored to us on earth in the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible. And in between, you have the God who became flesh Not the God who came as a hologram or some sort of image or resemblance of humanity and kind of lived around us to show us some amazing things, but nobody could really touch him. Or if you punched him, your fist would go right through him because he wasn't really human. No, no, no. God came in skin. God came with blood underneath that skin. God came with hunger and fatigue and the need to grow up and learn. God ate food. God walked on dirty roads. God washed his disciples' feet. This God was fully human, which should have given us the ultimate affirmation that God still calls everything physical good. We, would, we grow up thinking what God cares about is murder. Did, did, did you kidnap somebody last week? Did you murder somebody? Did you steal from a bank? Like, those are the things God cares about. But then I began to learn God cares also not just about murder, but about matter. Matter matters to him. Physical things matter to him. And so I began to see that holiness, a life set apart for God and living after God, was not just something I did privately inside, but it was something that I did on the outside too. It's something that affected what I eat, what I watch and listen to, and who I talk to, and people that I touch, where I walk, how I drive, all of these things. Holiness is about wholeness of life. So... The most challenging verse in the Bible, I'm going out on a limb here, tonight it is, the most challenging verse in the Bible, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is the same exact word describing what God is doing with Israel in the tabernacle in this book of Leviticus. He lived among them and with them. 
Now, we get the word. We're really good at that. We pick this up every week, some of us every day, and we read through it, and we're understanding God the word. We're getting to know God cognitively in our head. We understand him. But, but the part about the word becoming flesh, we're not as attuned to. We have a hard time relating to God in our body and in the things we do in a physical realm. We're really good at praying and asking God for help in the soul, but we're not very good at seeing that everything around me, everything around me, not just humans, but everything, food even, is something that God befriended. So how do we live in light of that? Well, let's look to Leviticus and see if you can track with it. So we're going to see, um, again, chapter about food, chapter 11, chapter 12 about birth, chapter 13 and 14 about skin disease, and chapter 15 about um, bodily fluid discharges. So chapter 11, verse 1. This is great stuff. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living animals that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cut among the animals, you may eat. That would be really hard to do today because our grocers do not give us pictures and diagrams of the feet of the animals we eat and how they eat. That would actually kind of gross us out. We just see nice plastic-wrapped meat, and we're like, Yay, I get to just cook it and eat it. Nevertheless, verse 4, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because everyone wants to eat that, it chews the cud but does not part the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. We continue in verse 9. These you may eat, all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas and the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or on the rivers that has not fins and scales, sorry, shrimp lovers, of the swarming creatures in the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture. I'm not like, do you have to shave that before you eat it? I'm not sure who would even think of that one. The black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant. I've heard that taste like chicken. The short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Now, for those of you struggling with hoopoe, we're starting a support group next week to stop your addiction to hoopoe. We're going to be packed out, I know it. All winged, insect, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet and, which, uh, and with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locusts of any kind. Yes, the bald locusts, because we want to include them too. The cricket of any kind and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass 
this shall be unclean until evening. And he talks about more carcasses. Don't touch the dead things. And these, verse 29, are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. Really sorry for disappointing your barbecue plans next weekend. (laughs) These are unclean to you that swarm. And so you get the point. It goes on. You're like, who would think about half of these? 90% of these. So there are reasons for this chapter. One being that all the scholars out there say, one is God is a scientist. God is ahead of Israel and knowing what's good for them to eat and what's not good for them to eat because they don't have microscopes that can see, oh my goodness, if we eat this, there's all these little parasites in here that are going to get us sick. They don't know that. So God's telling them, hey, stay away from this and you shall live a long life, but eat these. These are okay. God is always ahead of what we learn because he put it there, right? So God knows what they can and cannot eat. Now, pig today, um, from what I understand, back then there was a lot of parasites you could ingest from a pig. Today, pigs are a lot cleaner than they were back in the day. So that's why we aren't all killing over when we eat um, uh, pork and all that good Mexican food and pulled pork sandwiches and barbecue. Um, But God, so first of all, he's a scientist. He's saying, I want you to know how to eat healthy. Number two, but but that doesn't really help us because some of these change, right? What's clean and unclean uh, isn't going to be the same all the time. So as different species and the way we breed them and things, we can actually make them unclean to us. So this isn't actually a very good guideline anymore, especially since I've never even thought about eating a lizard or a hoopo. So does anybody know what that is, by the way? You can look that up. I don't know. Um, second, so God wants them to eat healthy. He's a scientist. But second, the neighbors around Israel who worshiped other gods would sacrifice many of these animals to their gods. And God is saying you're going to approach me differently than everybody else is approaching me. And in a sense, what he's also saying is, I want you to offer to me foods that I like. And so therefore, I'm going to ask you to eat only the foods that I would eat. If God, in other words, would not eat this animal in a sacrifice, then you shouldn't eat this animal. So he's asking Israel to have a godly diet. Wow. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, it'd sell a million books, The Godly Diet. I should probably do it. I don't know what that would be. Um, So he's asking that. But third, and probably more to the point, is not only is God taking care of their health, not only is he asking them to eat what only he would eat and not to eat what the pagans are eating around them, but third, and to the heart, is in verse 44. So all these laws are there. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate. That means set yourself apart. Therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with anything that swarms, swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, remember, holy here means, like consecrated, it means to set yourself aside for God. So the world is like this, but I'm going to step out of that and let myself, my body, my entire being be used for him differently. It does not necessarily mean that 
Holy means you're without sin and you're never sinning. Holy people don't sin. Unholy people sin. That's not the idea here. It's about the way you're using yourself for God. Which brings me to another important point, which you will see in the next chapter is very important to clarify. Clean and unclean has nothing to do with sin. So when God says this animal is unclean, you shall not eat it. It does not mean that if I go eat little porky here, I'm a sinner. That's not what that means. Nothing in here in all these chapters. Clean does not mean sinless and unclean does not mean sinful. Nowhere in these chapters are you going to see the word sin. It's not talking about sin. God is giving them a way of life to think about how to navigate the material world. Okay. All right. Chapter 12, labor. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. At the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then shall she continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. That's twice as long as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days, also twice as long. So, baby boy, all right, I got to be detached from everybody for 40 days. Baby girl, all right, I got to be detached from everybody for 80 days. No one knows why the difference for the genders. There's absolutely no sensical explanation for this that I've read. Um, So we don't really know why that. But why is God asking them to go away from everybody when you have a baby? Is this because, ew, the female body is so gross. Ew, that baby came out and, ew, have you seen labor? It's so gross. That's not what God's doing here. The idea is not that the woman is excluded from life because, ew, you did that thing. That's not the idea. And it's not to say that women and men are not equal because men, well, God never has to cast them out because they don't do this. But women are lesser because they have to bear these baby things. Nope, not God's attitude either here. Quite the contrary, you'll see that God is valuing what women do very highly. It's been said by some scholars that other nations did not value birth as much. They would put women right back to work once they had their baby. And that God here is respecting the fact that they worked very hard, very hard to have this baby and that they need a rest and that they need a space and a moment and time to bond with this little precious thing, this little life, this little baby. That they need the skin-to-skin contact. That they need a bond and build their body back up and not get immediately back to work. God in this chapter, though it seems on one at first like God is just kind of disrespectful, he's actually bringing women into a place where he's respecting the work that they bring to the society and saying, you do what no one else can do. Well, obviously men can't do it. Um, You are bringing life into this community, and we are going to reward you and give you rest for that. And so God here is elevating women to be more than tools for the men to say, you're my tool to give me offspring, more than objects for the men to say, well, you're just my sexual gratification, and more than just a means to some other end. No, God's saying, I know sometimes in society women can be treated like that, but I see them as incredibly valuable to what's going on. So I'm giving them safety rules. And so then he describes at the end of chapter 12 that 
When this is done, you're to give an offering of gratitude of probably because you've been away from the sanctuary, you now bring an offering to kind of make up for not being around. Um, And then it says, if you're poor, you can bring two pigeons or two doves, which is interesting because in Luke chapter two, we see Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple after the days of her uncleanness. Remember, unclean does not mean sin. Um, They brought what? Two birds which shows us an insight into Jesus' upbringing that he was poor. Mary and Joseph could not afford a normal animal. Chapter 13, this one goes on and on. So, Dr. Brandon in the house. Here we go. Chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the skin appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Hold there. So why are they going to the priest and not to the doctor? Well, the priest could actually read. Uh, they would be in a better spot than most people in this time. So they are going to be kind of the ones. Now, you can tell there's not a lot of, um, there's a lot of just like, okay, your skin looks bad. It looks like it's deeper than the flesh like this little boil or spot. So let's just try this out. There's a lot of trial and error in this chapter. So if it looks like this, then you're going to quarantine them for seven days. And if they come back and they're better, then you shave them, wash them, and let them go back home. But if it looks, ah, that's a little sketchy. I don't know. You don't look better if you quarantine them for another seven days. There's all this back and forth about shaving hair, washing the clothes and the skin, being quarantined, looking at the skin, seeing how it's transpiring. Um, What we need to know, too, is that leprosy here... We often think of the literal case leprosy where you start to lose your feeling and your skin and things start to come off because you can't feel and things uh, just kind of, you, you bang your body to death <laughs> on things and things start to come off. Uh, actually, in the language, it's not specifically leprosy. It just deals with various kinds of skin diseases. So um, this is anytime your skin looks a little weird or there's a rash and it's not, well, this looks, you know, this looks bad. You're supposed to go to the priest and he determines. So this would be a lot more common than the random and rare case of leprosy. So we read on. I left you off in verse 4. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. You're quarantined, buddy. Nobody talks to you. We'll bring you food under the door. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up another seven days. Let's just be sure. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he's shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, so in other words, you go home and uh uh-oh, something flared back up, you're going back to the priest, he shall appear again before the priest, verse 8, and the priest shall look, and if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. Back through the cycle again. (laughs) 
Then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. Now, the rest of this chapter goes on in other ways. Um, gives you different scenarios. It even goes as far to say, all right, if your clothes look a little funny, a little mildew or mold growing in them, this is the process for your clothes. And then the house. If the house has a little spot, okay, it's the same process for skin, clothing, and housing. God cares how we cover ourselves. Our skin is covering us, our clothes are covering our skin, and our house is covering us. God cares about our covering. Now, speaking of covering, look at verse 40. There's a little, little good news for you. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. Amen? And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has his baldness of the forehead, he is clean. So, good news, gentlemen. Let it go. <laughs> now, chapter 14 deals with what happens when the skin disease is cured and you're now out of quarantine, you can come back into society. What do you do? Well, you probably throw a party, but first, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law for the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed and the lep in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live, clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. Four things. Two birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. So birds, wood, yarn, hyssop. Hyssop like a, a branch from like a, a bush tree, a very short tree, um, that Moses used in putting blood on the doorposts in Egypt. Uh, so these things are brought. And verse 5, the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. <laughs> now, the first birds were like, man, how come I can't be the second bird? The second bird's like, I'm glad I'm the second one. So he's killed in the earthenware vessel over fresh water. Now, he shall, verse 6, take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them in the live bird and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over fresh water. So they get dunked in the first bird's death. Verse 7, he shall sprinkle it. It is the blood from the first bird, the bloody water. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Okay, okay, recap. Two birds. This one dies. Ring, they kill it. And the blood goes into the vessel over the water. So you got this mixture. Then they take the live bird. He goes, oh man. And the other elements. And they dunk those into the blood. And they bring them out. Then the priest sprinkles this bloody water onto you, the cured person, seven times. Then they take that other bird who's covered in the first bird's blood. And they take him out into an open field and say, go. And he flies away in the open field. So, pretty interesting, huh? Verse 8, and he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes. So this has been done. He washes his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. So he's almost home. <laughs> and on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, his eyebrows, and he shall shave off all his hair. And then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean, which means back to full life. 
wow, can you guys imagine if this happened to me? I had this suspicious little thing going on my hand. I was gone for 14 days. Where's, where is he? Um, and Pastor Mike's making all these excuses. Oh, he smells really bad. You should see those sores. And then I go through this process, right? And this purifying, maybe we have this whole ceremony. I don't know, whatever would happen. Um, but then I come back and I have no beard and I have no hair on my head and I have no hair on my arms anywhere. That, you guys wouldn't even know who I am. <laughs> Get rid of this freak. Who is he? <laughs> so it would be very strange. But can you imagine what you would look like coming back into the community? You look like a newborn person, a baby, a new life, which has led many people to look at this as a picture of what happens when we fall into sin. Leprosy is sin. And that leprosy, well, it does what, or sin does what leprosy does. Sin starts in the flesh, literally small, but then it spreads. And something we're doing like, oh, it's just a little thing. It's not a big deal. And then it balloons in life. It gets bigger. It starts to spread. Leprosy then numbs your nerve endings. We become numb and insensitive to things in life. We think that's not a big deal. I've been doing that a long time and we can no longer discern good from evil. And then things begin to fall off. And then, so you start losing things in life, friends, status, reputation. Um, it isolates. You have to go out of the camp and live by yourself because sin sometimes keeps us away from people we don't want them to see. So we push them out of these parts of our lives all really good, powerful insights, which uh, Warren Wiersbe and John Corson are very keen on uh, Wiersbe's book, of which you can get from the resource table back there. Um, they go more into this. I, 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 just, I don't want to go into this too much because I just, um, it's not really there. It's just a metaphor they're extracting. And it's, it's powerful and good. The problem is that this is not what leprosy was back then. It was merely anything that the, any skin illness um, but the, the metaphor continues in that the two birds are Christ. The first bird is killed and Jesus was killed. And that's how we are cured and cleansed. And then the second bird is Jesus when he raises from the dead, let out in the open field to fly away. And so we too will resurrect out of our leprosy, out of our sin and death and live with him forevermore. Really cool picture. Then chapter 15 so 14 goes on, just like 13, tells you how to cleanse this and that and that and this. It's basically the same. Chapter 15. So here we have our tissues and other things for bodily discharges. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with a discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. I'm so glad it's really vague about this, aren't you? Every bed on which the one with the, dis- on which the, one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which... The one with the discharge has sat, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is unclean, ah, that's how you can ruin someone's day, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Oh, come on, man. I have to go sit and time out for the rest of the day because you spit on me. 
That's really mean. Or you could just like boogeyman, right? Like, I'm unclean, look out. <laughs> it would be hard. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone from... Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Wow. So don't let them do the dishes and they're unclean. What an excuse, huh? What an excuse. So um, it goes on to talk about different bodily fluids. That one was vague. They get a little more specific in some of these. But we see that God is serious about them. And so what we see in chapter 15 is this idea that bodies need boundaries. Sometimes we just need to say, yeah, we don't touch people in this condition or in this situation. And um, because God is serious about the body. Now, one of Christianity's biggest criticisms is it's view on sexuality and that sexuality is to be reserved in a very limited way with one person in the context of marriage. And man, is that unpopular with a lot of people. But what we see in Christianity is a God who not only made the material universe, but then entered into it and became a human with us, died and then wrote like we will, and then rose from the dead in what? A body. When Jesus goes through the death and comes back, he could have come back in anything. Some super like divine, who knows, unearthly kind of like glowy, shiny thingy majigger that you might call a body. Um, but he came back in flesh, in skin, something the disciples touched, something that could eat the fish the disciples gave to him to prove he's not a ghost. He came back in skin. And so what we know is that we, at the end of time, will be resurrected from the dead in what? Skin. Skin is not something to be ashamed of. It is something that God cherishes so much so that he was willing to put it on himself, which is revelatory for some of us because we live in a society where skin is very shameful, whether it's the way we feel about our body or our appearance or the color of our skin or all the laws about how you, 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 uh, these people come in. He groped me. 10 years ago, or last month, he groped me. Uh, skin becomes shame, or if it's a Victoria's Secret ad. Skin becomes something that's like, oh, we got to stay away from that. Or science is reducing our concept of skin to just, well, all it is is just molecules and atoms, and it's not really that special. Um, or if we're going even back to the Puritans, we're suspicious of our skin because it likes to get involved in sin or likes to have pleasure. And we're not sure pleasures of God. Um, but when I read a chapter about foods you can eat, when I read a chapter about 
how to deliver and care for a baby and how to care for the mother who had the baby. And when I read a chapter that goes on and on and on about how to examine people's skin and how to get it cleansed and clean and restore them back into a normal human existence. And then when I read a chapter about bodily discharges and fluids and how to, how to stay clean and, and what to do with somebody that's in that context, when I read these chapters, I can't help but see a God who loves your skin as much as he loves your soul. Can I say that again? God loves your skin as much as he loves your soul, which is so strange to say because we preach so often about how he loves you and who you are. And we're always taking this. Yeah, my soul, because my soul is what lives forever. My soul is going to hell because of sin. He rescued me from that. So my soul can be with him in this like unearthly kind of place. We think of heaven with naked cherubims playing harps and golden streets. And it's just like, we don't even know what's there, but it can't be this defiled, wretched skin sack that's getting wrinkly and saggy, that's breaking down. And I have pains and aches and it's looking uglier. And gets burned by the sun, whatever it is, we think this cannot be God's plan. But I read Leviticus and I see that God is bringing holiness, not to just the way we think about him, not just to the way we pray to him, not just the way the condition of our heart is, but to the very level of, is there a spot on your skin? Was there a discharge yesterday? Did you have a baby last week? Are you trying to decide what to eat on that menu? And so because he loves all of you, soul and skin, because he loves all of you, he takes the time to say, okay, let's think about what we should eat. Let's talk about food, Israel. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the role of women in society. And what we should do with them when they have a baby. Are they just to get back to work and make you stew? Or do they deserve a break? Let's talk about your actual skin. The, the thing that you're, well, you don't, you know, you were that boy at the swimming pool that didn't want to take your shirt off because you were embarrassed. Or you had chest hair before your friends or armpit hair before your friends. And, and you just, you did not know if this was normal or if you were like a freak. Am I going to turn into a werewolf? I don't know. So you kept yourself covered. Like, let's talk about that skin that you were afraid of. Let, let, let's talk about, let's talk about maybe the figure. You, you wish you weren't shaped like a pear. You wish you were shaped like that magazine person. Um, let's, let's talk about, yeah, growing up and having discharges and getting sick. And brothers and sisters, this is our God who isn't just up there, out there waiting for us to leave this filthy, rotten place. He's right here, right now. And he's saying, okay, you are so cherished to me. I want to be involved in what you eat. I want to be involved in how you work and rest and create life and raise kids and be married and relate to the other gender. I want to talk about how you take care of your skin and the clothes you wear and the house you live in and what happens when things happen to those. I want to talk about those things of life. So the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says this, you've heard this before. 
Do you not know that your body, your skin, your bones, your hair, the blood that makes all this happen, your organs, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Back, wait, wait. Okay, we hear this all the time. Like, yeah, 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 I shouldn't smoke because it's a temple of the Lord, so I should take care of it. No, 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 no. Don't, don't cheapen what this is saying by hearing it so much. Your body is a temple. Okay, we're in Leviticus. What does that mean? Well, the temple was at this point a tent in which God was living in. And this whole book is about how to live with a God who's living in a tent in your midst. So, so what Paul is saying now is that that God living in that tent with all these rules about how to approach him and live around him, that God is now living in your body. What? what? So the tabernacle that was with Israel was living with them. That presence was then living in Jesus and was among us. And now that presence is living inside of you when you come to Jesus. So that you now become a tabernacle from my fingers to my eyes, my mouth, my, my legs, my hair, everything about my physical body, my, my matter, my atoms, my molecules, my tissues. This is a temple of God. God has chosen to take residence in this body of mine. This is sacred. This is a holy of holies. Whoa, wait a minute. Okay, I wasn't ready to think about it that strongly. But yeah, yeah, that's what Paul's saying. So, because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He then says, you are not your own, therefore. Your body is not yours to do whatever you want with. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we have this tent. We've been talking about this tabernacle where God's living with Israel. This tent sits in a courtyard. Inside the tent is a room called the Holy of Holies where God's presence and heaven and earth connect. Okay? So there's this holy of holies, a sacred heaven and earth connecting the little Edenic 15 by 15 by 15 cubic foot location on earth. That's the holy of holies. You do not get closer to God than right there. The tent that houses this is called the holy place. The third zone. So we've got three sections, holy of holies, the tent, the holy place. Then we have the outer courts, which surround all this and protect it from the rest of the world. These outer courts are the third zone. And the closer, so the, the, the outer courts are kind of holy. The tent is very holy. And then that room inside is called the holy of holies because it doesn't get holier than that. So why am I telling you about this tent? Because you are this tent. This is what the New Testament tells us. Your body is now this tent. So you and I are constructed of three parts. We have a spirit It's the spirit of God at the very core of what we are. That's the Holy of Holies where God and earth are meeting right there. You have a spirit that connects directly with God. Now, for the earthling who does not follow Jesus, that spirit, depending on your Calvin or non-Calvin theology, that's a whole other discussion, but depending on that, your spirit is either asleep or it's dead. It's there, but it has a no, nothing with God is happening until we read in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon a person. Now, God's spirit coming into a person resurrects this spirit within you so that the spirit in you is 
is God's spirit. At the very center and core of your being is that, God coming into you, the holy of holies. Around this is now where we begin to experience life. We have a soul. We have an immaterial existence. I have, I have things that you can't see about me. I have emotions. I have um, an ability to reason and to be conscious about my existence. I have dreams and I have hurts. And things that you say may not hurt my flesh, but they can hurt me somewhere in here. That's my soul. This is the part of me that's processing emotions and dreams and the immaterial part of life. And then the outer court. That is our body. And because the body, the thing you can see and touch and feel, and if I stab it, you will feel that. That's your body. It's got a certain height, a certain weight, a certain shape, a certain color. It's got certain hair color, certain eye color. This is your body. This is the outer courts. And so I'm a material person. Then I'm an immaterial person. And then I'm the Holy of Holies. We are temples of God. Brothers and sisters, the reason God goes to the efforts to say, let's think about what we eat, let's think about childbirth, let's think about skin disease and bodily fluids, the reason God has the time, takes the time to walk Israel through this and to leave it here for us to walk through is because we need to understand that we are not these beings who are simply spiritual and will leave the physical alone. I think Christianity has lost a lot of effectiveness in our culture because we've reduced our belief into something that's cognitive and invisible and something that's internal. And we've stopped talking about how following Christ affects my body and the world around me. Oh, of course, we bring up the body and we say, kids don't have sex, or you're not married, don't have sex, or you can't, sleep, or you can't stay in their house, whatever. That's like the one time we talk about the body or drugs. But do we have any dialogue for it? And so here, here's some of my reflections on this. Working backward in our text. We need more incarnation and less information. Information does nothing for the material world. It does something for my head and inside of me. But incarnation is the idea when the word becomes flesh and now makes a living on earth. That's incarnation. Infleshation is what it means. It becomes enfleshed. We need incarnation. We need guidance on how to bring skin to life. So, what can we learn from Leviticus? First, we need to learn to connect with people with contact. This. Now, why would God have to tell them, well, when this person's unclean, Give them the tissue and keep your distance. Kick them out of the camp, you know? You're unclean, go away. Why would God have to say that? Because there's a society in which people are actually living next to each other, working next to each other, walking to the store with each other. Well, if they had those, you know. But taking walks with each other, traveling together, riding on the same saddle together, sharing a whole family, the same bed together, these are not modern times where everyone had their enclosed four walls and sat in there until they had to eat dinner together or do whatever their parents asked them to do or, or your kids need you to do. This was a time when you were always together and, and physical contact was a real thing. America, we're, we're very shy of physical contact because, well, if you touch a kid, I mean, who knows what might happen? Someone might say you did something inappropriate. 
Or if you hug someone of the opposite gender, someone might say, they must have a secret thing for each other. I I went to a school um, where the rules back then were three-second rule on hugging. Anybody. (laughs) We're very, like, physically insecure when skin is touching skin in our culture. And I get that. That's a safe thing. I get that. Um, but what we're losing is that actual physical connection and contact is healing for people. And that we are actually losing uh, part of our humanity by, by relating to people virtually or cyber, uh, through a cyber world or by keeping our distance and, and making sure we're all arm space apart and, well, you better not, you know, hug or... Humans need contact physical contact. When a baby is born, doctors suggest that there's skin to skin with the baby as much as possible. Not holding a baby's clothes, but pure skin to pure skin. Because there's something humanizing when we touch each other. There was something powerful about Jesus not holding the tissue out to the leper and saying, you know, there's magic in this. Be healed. (laughs) Because frankly, I probably would have done it like that if I was him. But Jesus instead reaches out and touches the leper and says, it's skin that has not been touched by anyone for years. What would happen if I touched him? We need to connect with each other, but we also need to contact each other. Holding hands in prayer is powerful because suddenly we're more unified than we were before we held hands and prayed. We need a hug. Now, of course, the early church had the kiss of peace, and that's maybe a little too far for us. But... You know, the whole hug thing's okay. Christians are famous for the hugs, but we're also famous for the half-committal hug. Hey, one arm. Like, I should like you, but I'm not sure I'm going to fully embrace you. Um, so that's, that's the bodily fluids we can learn, is we, we actually need more contact. But of course, there are boundaries there. There are places that are not appropriate to touch and settings that maybe, yeah, you guys, you don't need your imagination for that. We can also learn from the skin diseases that we're a society that's quick to medicate. We're a society that says, there's a problem with my body, give me pills. Or let me go see the doctor and and just give me something. Or I'm feeling pain, so give me a painkiller. We're very quick to go there. But notice how God does not send the person with the skin disease to a doctor. He sends them to the priest. Now, that might have been, like I said, because back then priests were probably the best shot you had at any sort of assessment. But I would also suggest that it's saying sometimes bodily and physical illness is more than medicine. Sometimes there's a condition within your soul that is manifesting physically. Oh, that just sounds like a bunch of Christian hogwash. I don't know. I was reading this week about how unforgiveness, science, unchristian scientists are saying, that unforgiveness can actually wreak physical harm to your body. Many things can come out of that. Because they're saying when we have anger, we actually hold the anger in the body. And it begins to take a toll on us. Maybe Jesus knew what he's talking about when he said, forgive one another and to love one another. And so we're quick to medicate and say, ah, I have a problem, doctor, help me. Now, sometimes, frankly, I mean, obviously, yes, don't, don't give up on doctors, please. God gave them to us. I'm not saying that. But sometimes we're so quick to say, doctor, give me medicine, when God is saying, you're so quick to be, for, to, 
why don't you just come to me sometimes? Maybe your problem is that you haven't forgiven somebody. Maybe your problem is that you haven't felt peace, not because you need sleeping pills, but because you just need to realize that I forgive what you did that you've been holding on to. Or you need to stop hating that person. Or you need to reconcile with that wrong that you did, and maybe then peace will come. We're quick to medicate. But I'm realizing we need to also be quick to meditate. That for the Christian... As the psalm says, meditating on his word day and night can be the best medicine we can have. And that maybe if we took the time, and maybe this is part of the quarantine process, put the person with the skin outside for days on end, maybe part of that so that we can actually start to think about our lives and say, wow, this is a little off right here. God wants body, soul, and spirit to work in integration to be working together. I'm not just a body that needs these physical needs met. I am not just a soul that is seeking to escape earthly things. And I'm not just a spirit with absolutely no anchor, just floating in the universe. All of these things come together and you are more human and more Christian and more like Jesus when we're able to step aside and look at life as a body, soul, and spirit and say, wow, that's off. Maybe that's why I don't feel good. So I'm not at all telling you how to um, do your health. Please continue what you do, but let's add meditate to our Medicaid. Third, let's learn to labor and love. Now the woman went through a lot of labor, a lot of labor. And then God said, have some time to love the fruit of your labor. Right now, our society is labor-driven. Work, work, work. We want to know um, how many companies you've started and how successful your company is rather than how many children you have and how good your children are. We want to know about your revenues, your bottom line, your money. We don't really care about your relationships. America's driving us toward work, get ahead, beat everybody because it's capitalism, you got to get ahead. Now, of course, it's brought a lot of good things to life, so we're not to say that is bad, but our mindset, when we let revenue trump relationships and, and labor trump love, we're missing something. We're no longer letting God be honored in our skin. And so, yes, work hard, but let's leave lots and lots of room to love the people around us. Oh, come on, I don't have time for this. I've got a deadline. Love the people around you. And then finally, diet like a divinity. (laughs) Diet like a God. Like, that's what God was saying. Don't give me things that I wouldn't, don't eat what I wouldn't eat. Now, we, I could get in a lot of trouble at this point when we talk about food. You know, you have all these like paleo and gluten-free and GMO-free and food-free and sugar-free. And, and you have the Atkins diet back in the day, the Mediterranean diet, the seafood diet, which is if I see food, I eat it. Like, every kind of possible strategy out there for eating and wholeness and wellness and I've never, frankly, gotten on board with any of these. I think they're all interesting. What I've chosen to do is just to eat as close to God's creation as I can. Why? Well, because I think that God cares about our skin and wants our bodies healthy. And so he's 
giving us this. Let's eat it. Sometimes when we're not mindful, when we're kind of stressed, well, yeah, when you're stressed and you're not in balance and your body's way out of whack with your soul, what do you do? Eat carbs. Lots of carbs. We're out of sync. We're out of balance. God has given us, however, and there's nothing wrong with carbs in moderation, right? What we need, what God's inviting us to do is to be aware of how we're eating and how we should eat. Um, yes, there's a lot of ideas out there about food. So many diet packages. Let's be honest, a lot of it's marketing. So don't worry about it. Don't stress yourself. Well, what should I do? This is the total, this one says eat carbs and this one says eat no carbs. Both claim they're healthy and science backs it up. Brothers, sisters, don't go there. Save yourself the headache. You notice what God did in these food laws? He never said, I want you to eat five of these and three of those and two of those in breakfast. And then don't eat that, but eat this at lunch. And then make sure you have a five-fold thing here at dinner. He, he did not give them a detailed way of eating. All he did was say, please don't eat this. It's not good for your skin. You can eat this. And then he left a lot of middle. Well, how then shall I eat? Ah, precisely. Each of our bodies are different. And some of us need more carbs than others because we are more active than others. Some of us live more in the head, and so we need more proteins. So we are all different. And what we need to do is simply be aware of how does God want me to eat? Would this, is this food close to God's idea of creation? Or is it so processed and humanized that it looks... Well, let's be honest. The West that eats a lot of processed food, we're the sickest people in the world. I mean, illness-wise. We have so many diseases, you cannot keep up with them. Is, is there a correlation? How would God want us to eat? And that's just listen to your body. What makes it feel good? And I don't mean, oh, a whole gallon of ice cream made me feel good. Because it did. And then in an hour, I am regretting everything I did, right? No, no, no. We're listening to, um, where is my body saying, yes, more strength there? We're letting God guide that because this is the God of the physical and the spiritual, of the body, the soul, the spirit. You are a temple. Let's honor that as holy in all areas of life.